From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. Today on Transition Lab, we have Ambassador Michael Froman. Now, in full disclosure, Mike is a longtime and close personal friend, so I may ask him some weird questions. I may make fun of him, but it's just because we've been friends for a long time. Now, Mike has had an amazing career, both in and out of government. He's one of the smartest and most impressive people I've ever met. He served in the Clinton administration in both the White House and Treasury Department, spent several years in the financial sector, and then returned to government in the Obama administration. During the Obama campaign and the transition, he was a member of the President-elect's Transition Advisory Council. But for this podcast, most importantly, pre-election, Mike led the transition team's personnel process. As such, he was the point person for developing, vetting, and recommending names to the candidate and then the president-elect for the cabinet and sub-cabinet. Today, Mike is the vice chairman for strategic growth at MasterCard. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dave. So, Mike, you had a long and distinguished career in government, but you weren't particularly a political person. So how did you get involved in the 2008 transition and the 2008 campaign for President Barack Obama? So I had uh, known President Obama from law school, so for more than 20 years at that point. And when he became senator, a group of us who he had known either from law school or other places had helped introduce him to people in Washington, helped him get his Senate office uh, set up and hire some of his initial staff. And as he was uh, uh, becoming a senator and then considering running for president, uh, there was a group of us that he would call in and ask for advice periodically. So I'd been involved with him for, for some time. And when he uh, decided to to run for president, uh, I offered to uh, to help him with the the transition, in part because I wasn't planning on going into government and thought that uh, I could make a contribution by by helping him with the personnel process. So when did you start to get involved in the transition planning process? I'd say it was probably the summer of of two thousand eight. There were a couple initial efforts to organize the transition process in late May, early June, and then again uh, in August. But the the real work was really from end of August until until November. Now, you're, as I mentioned, an extraordinarily talented person, but basically you had no background in personnel. And so why did he tap you to lead personnel efforts? And why did you think that you could do a good job of doing that? Well, first, I, I had played a role in helping to manage a government agency like the Treasury Department when I was chief of staff there during the Clinton administration. And in the private sector, I had built businesses and built teams to run those businesses. So I had some experience in thinking about talent and how to bring talent together, how to recruit it, and how to build teams uh, in in that regard. Um, But the presidential personnel process, of course, is a a unique process, and there's really nothing like it anywhere uh, else in the world. I, I think I, I felt that because I knew the president-elect, uh, the candidate and the president-elect, and uh, there was a lot of trust uh, between us that I had some sense of what he would be looking for. 
And because I knew government, had been in government uh, for seven years during the Clinton administration, and knew also how to build teams and uh, uh, create uh, organizations, uh, that that combination of skills um, helped. But but to be fair, it's a such a unique process. I'm not sure there's really any full preparation for it from from any previous experience. And you mentioned that you didn't expect to go into government, and and why was that? Well, it was more of a personal issue at the time in that my son, uh, Jacob, was quite sick and felt that uh, I would most likely stay out of government, but I wanted to contribute. And I thought that I, by contributing to the personnel process, to the transition process, that would be, uh, that would be my, my, uh, my effort there for the president-elect. And I did not anticipate going in because I felt, uh, I assumed that I was going to have to stay outside and, um, and uh, take care of my son. As it turned out, he unfortunately took a turn for the worse and, and passed away. And at that point, I decided that I would go into government. Well, I just want to, I didn't expect this to go into that personal terms, but I just want to say that I spent a lot of time with you during those months and you handled that with skill and grace and strength and you and Nancy, you know, just became models for me. And Jacob was a wonderful, wonderful kid and, um, you know, still pains me and I'm sure it's just pains you every day. So, so you were dealing with that personal crisis and how did you manage being able to focus on the important tasks at hand in building a government? Yeah, well, look, frankly, I think it was having that task at hand that allowed me to, to manage the personal crisis uh, as well, being able to focus my energies and on, on something as important as helping the president-elect select and build his team. But, it, you know, needless to say, it was a, it was a challenging time. So you, he taps you in June, you start to get involved or, or July. And when did you actually start to build lists, start to come up with names of people that might be considered for cabinet and sub-cabinet agencies? I think we started that process in, in August and September. And it involved reaching out to a wide range of organizations and contacts of the, of the candidates and, and others to begin to get input around various areas as to people who might be put on a slate for the president-elect to choose. Um, and I think, I think that started in August and September. And so what was your task? Meaning there are 15 or so cabinet agencies, there are a bunch of other very important non-statutory cabinet positions, CIA and the FCC and others. And did you come up with a list of four or five for each position or what was your mandate? So the approach was more to look at teams rather than individual positions. So we'd look at the national security team, the economic team, the domestic policy team, the environment team, and come up with lists of names of people who could fill potentially multiple positions. It wasn't so much having five candidates for one job, but more of having you know, 15 candidates for a handful of jobs so that you could begin to see how you could create a team. And if this person went to that job, then it would be good to balance them with having this other person go to this other job. Um, so it was really done as, as a cluster. And there weren't a set number of, of candidates for every job. It was more going out and looking for as many qualified and diverse candidates as possible 
so that the president elect would have maximum opportunity to, to choose and uh, would have the, the greatest possibility of, of putting together the cabinet that he wanted. And so that was that was really the, the goal, coming up with lists of names. And, and my job was basically to to create lists, uh, to create lists, to, to do some some basic background check from public material, to get background on the relevant people and to assemble them in a way that the, that the president-elect could digest. So just as an example, I recall that the president-elect and you and others wanted to have Larry Summers and Tim Geithner as part of the economic team. We were in the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, and they're two smart, capable, incredibly you know, experienced people. But I recall that the president-elect didn't really know what slot they wanted to put Larry and Tim in, and there was kind of a back and forth on that. Is that right? Well, there there was, and and I thought he was going to have to choose between one or the other because uh, Larry had already been Treasury Secretary. I didn't see him necessarily taking a position other than that. Tim, I thought, would make a very good Treasury Secretary, particularly coming off of being president of the Federal Reserve uh, in New York. And I thought he was going to have to choose between the two. And he, in fact, approached both and convinced both of them to join the administration and then convinced Larry to take the position as head of the National Economic Council instead. The national security team was a surprise to everybody. So at defense, you had Bob Gates. He was there before. At state, you had Hillary Clinton and then Leon Panetta at CIA and General Jones at the NSC, who really was not that involved in, I think, the campaign and was kind of a newcomer. So how did that group come together? You know, in that case, it was really a lot of input from people like Dennis McDonough and Mark Lippert, who were running the foreign policy part of the campaign and had been with, with Senator Obama for a number of years doing foreign policy, either working for him directly or working with him on Capitol Hill from their position, within, uh, I guess in Dennis's case, with uh, with Senator Daschle. And so uh, they had worked with a wide range of people during the campaign, had uh, views on who would make the, the right team. And uh, that process was a little bit separate from the other jobs because they had already, in some ways, worked through who they wanted to have on that team. And of course, the, the issue of Secretary Clinton becoming Secretary of State, that was really something just for the president-elect to work out. And that was uh, that was something that he wanted to get done himself. One of the things that is amazing about what you did is usually this work is conducted in quiet, behind the scenes, because you're dealing with people, you're dealing with names, it's incredibly sensitive. But a lot of your memos were leaked eight years later on WikiLeaks, because the chairman of the transition was John Podesta, and famously, his emails were leaked by, I guess, WikiLeaks and the Russians. So a lot of your memos are out there. So when those memos leaked and they had all these names on it, what was your reaction? Well, first, I was I was pleased that during the transition itself, we operated at a high degree of, of discretion and there, then there were not a lot of leaks. But eight years later, um, it was certainly a, a bit odd and jarring to read memos um, in the in the public uh, in the public domain. I think most of them hold up pretty well with the 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 benefit of, of retrospection. But you know, these things are obviously better kept quiet and confidential because you are dealing with individuals, and whenever you're dealing with personnel issues in any organization, it's best to keep 
this as discreet as possible out of respect for those individuals. Yeah. I mean, as part of my job of learning about transitions for this role, I read a lot of those memos. And what struck me was the professionalism, the advanced planning, the methodical way that you went about them. And basically, you did exactly what one would hope one would do in this job, which is have a thorough process, give the president many options, give the president many pros and cons, and tee up decisions for the president-elect to make. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, that certainly was the goal. We wanted this to be very professional. We wanted him to be ready on day one with the team that he wanted to be able to address the issues. And particularly as the over the course of the fall, as the global financial crisis was, was, was emerging, you know, it became more and more critical that he be able to start on day one with the economic team, with all the issues around foreign policy that were on the table, uh, with all the other things that he wanted to get done so that he could, that, so that he could move. So uh, his direction to, to us, to, to John Podesta, to myself, to the others involved was, you know, he wanted this to be as professional, as well-planned as, as possible without being presumptuous. You know, he had not been elected yet. And we, you know, we were very careful not to interfere with his time, with the campaign, his primary focus in August, September, October was getting elected. And so uh, our goal was to make this as professional as possible without being presumptuous and assuming that he was going to, uh, to win until he actually had. So let's get down to the nitty gritty, which is pre-election, you do a lot of planning, a lot of list building, a lot of open source research, but you're basically not making recommendations or deciding anything, maybe the chief of staff, maybe the, a couple of other positions. So post-election, the campaign and the transition teams merge. You were paired with Jim Messina, who was running the campaign. And so you had both a political person and you who did the personnel planning. And so then you get to D-Day and how do you make decisions? So which decisions did the president-elect make first? Which cabinet decisions? That's a good question. Look, I think his first his first decision was not a cabinet position. It was the, the decision of chief of staff and choosing Rahm Emanuel, which also then you know helped further the the uh, the process because Rahm was very focused on both the cabinet and the White House uh, the White House staff. I remember teeing up these lists for the economic team, the national security team, as um, among the first. And having those conversations with the, the president-elect um, you know, soon after the election to begin to have that, to begin to have those conversations. And again, because of the global financial crisis, you know, there was a particular, uh, a particular momentum for getting decisions around the economic team. I, I can't remember precisely which decisions he made first, second, or, or third, but he was looking at lists soon after the uh, election. And it, and it worked in my view, it worked quite well because Jim Messina was a terrific partner. He came off of the campaign. He knew who from the campaign or who had emerged from the campaign that we wanted to make sure were on those lists. He also, having worked on the on the Hill, the Senate Finance Committee uh, staff, uh, he and, and and people like Dennis and and Mark Lippert also knew who from the Hill was important to to the president elect. And so we were able to make sure that the list reflected not just us going off and coming up with the candidates on our own research, but also 
people that were going to be uh, important to to include from other parts of the president-elect's life. How did you manage the jockeying for jobs? So, you know, this is a brutal, chaotic period during a campaign. Pretty much most people are rowing the same direction, rowing the boat. But after the election, after a victory, everybody starts to say, all right, I need to focus on myself. I need to get a job. And you have lots of jockeying. How did you manage that? And how did you manage the inputs for people seeking jobs? You had senators calling you, you had governors calling you, you had your third grade, you know, soccer buddy calling you. How did you manage all that? Yeah. So, you know, look, on uh, there, there certainly was an element of that, but people were actually engaged in pretty good behavior, I'd have to say. I mean, everyone was very excited that, that, that Obama had won the election. Uh, people came off the campaign oftentimes went into the transition and you know they they had, of course had hoped to they hoped to get into the administration but there wasn't there weren't a lot of sharp elbows or or bad behavior that you might expect i think one thing that distinguished president obama from a lot of other people who have run for or become president is you know he had not been in washington for years and years and he didn't have a list of a thousand people that he needed to find it, find jobs for. He was really quite open to meeting whoever was the the best candidate for the job. And you know, and I remember going back, you know, with Podesta to him a couple of times and saying, "Is there anybody, you know, give us the list of people who are very important for us to take care of?" And the list was relatively short. And otherwise, he was open to whoever you know, emerged as the, the best candidates for, for the job and wanted to, to take that open perspective. And, you know, I'll just give you an example. You know, it's, it's known, quite well known that uh, uh, President Obama is into science and, you know, is, uh, is thoughtful about these issues. He wanted to see the three or four scientists from our science cluster list, even though they weren't necessarily at the, 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 the highest or the most urgent priority, because he cared about having science in his administration and having, you know, strong scientists fill those various roles. And so, you know, that the, the, the personnel process also had to reflect, I think, his, his, his particular interests as well. And how did you pick the sub-cabinet? So there's always tension between the White House picking those jobs and the cabinet agency leaders picking those jobs. So did you cut a deal with each cabinet officer and certain cabinet officers had more sway or were they really White House picks or were they cabinet picks? In most cases, they were White House picks or at least White House suggestions. And so uh, particularly at the beginning of the administration, because the, the new cabinet members coming in, you know, they were new to their jobs as, as, as well. And so, you know, they were open to having People sent to them and say, "Here, here are three or four people we think you might want to consider for senior level jobs in the administration, in your in your cabinet agency. Here's you know potential deputy or a couple undersecretary possibilities." And you know there was a bit of a negotiation back and forth, but in most cases it was White House driven. I think you know some cabinet members I would say had more uh, influence over decisions in their agency than others, and certainly Secretary Clinton asserted I think greater influence over the State Department. But even there, there was a lot of back and forth between the White House presidential personnel and and the State Department to work through those jobs uh, as well. 
Last week, we had Lisa Brown on Transition Lab. As you know, she led the agency review effort. She was staff secretary, you know, very, very accomplished individual. And we pulled the data on the agency review teams. So there were about 120 agency review leads for the Obama transition. And about half of them went into the administration. About 20% went into Senate confirmed positions in the first two years. 10% went into Senate confirmed positions at some other point in the future. But about another half, they never went in. And so the people that are doing these jobs, the agency review jobs, do you see that as kind of a test run or a dry run for how well they're going to perform in a potential administration? I guess I view it slightly differently. I think the agency review teams were constructed because you had people who knew those areas or those agencies decently well from either previous experience or they had worked in those broad areas of economics or national security, foreign policy, uh, et cetera. And so it was less sort of a tryout than that was a natural place for people with those areas of expertise to go. And we knew some would want to serve in, in you know, most likely sub-cabinet positions and others, this is what they could do for, for personal or financial reasons. They would want it to be helpful during the transition and they might not ever serve. It was more, I'd say less of a rehearsal or a, uh, an audition than it was creating a pool of people who could potentially go into uh, those agencies as openings emerged. What was the best way to approach Mike Froman to get a job? So I'm sure that during this period, people were calling you and saying, Mike, you're six foot five, blonde, yeah, chiseled. Exactly, exactly. And the Mike I know is kind of 5'11 and asthmatic. So, you know, um, so all these people are sucking up to you. And what was the best way to get a job? And what was the worst way? So, yeah, I, be, I, I became... I, I, my friend group expanded immensely during this period. It was really quite remarkable. Went away soon thereafter, but that's the way of Washington. Look, I think the worst way was to presume that you deserved a job. So people who came in and said, I, have, I am the greatest expert in this area and I have served, you know, the three of the last democratic administrations, and I am clearly the most qualified person for this position. And, you know, where, where, where do I fill out my employment forms? That didn't tend to go over very well, uh, in part because President Obama was also a change candidate and he didn't want to rely completely on people who had served before. He wanted to make sure that the cabinet was diverse. It reflected the face of America and reflected a broad range of experiences, including people who had served in government and people who had not necessarily served in, in government before. So that was probably not the most successful way of, of asking for a job. I think the, the, the more successful approach was to make clear that, that you were low maintenance, that you wanted to serve, that there were a variety of positions that you could envisage yourself doing that you were not insistent on necessarily being the top person in any agency, but you were willing to, to play whatever role the president-elect felt was appropriate uh, for you, um, and that you were, you were there for the long run, that you were a team player, uh, that you could work with others, because ultimately you were building teams and wanted to make sure that you weren't creating unnecessary tension between people who would be jockeying for positions. So I think th those people who were seen as 
you know, good citizens who could join an administration and just, you know, get along, bring their expertise to the table and, and have the president's interests in mind and the interests of the, the country in mind above all else. Those were the ones who sort of rose to the top. One of the things that uh, we've talked about with you and with people like Don Gibbs, who ran personnel and Jim Messina, deputy chief of staff, is that Obama had the fastest start of any administration. And at the Partnership for Public Service, we want new administrations to go fast and get good people. So two goals that are in tension with each other, but you want the best people and you want them in their seats fast. So at the 100-day mark, Obama had more Senate-confirmed positions in their seats than any other president. Still low, 69, but the best ever. Trump, by contrast, had 28. But at the year mark, actually, you had slowed down. And part of that, I think, in hindsight, is because there was a lot of churn in the personnel operation. So what happened there and what are lessons learned for future administrations? Yeah, I think I had been working on personnel, but my intent was never to do personnel in the administration. In fact, I hadn't planned on going into the administration at all, as we discussed. And when I did go in, it was in an area of, uh, of international economic policy. I handed the reins over to, to Don Gibbs, who, who really set up the presidential personnel operation uh, very effectively. But he, too, was there for, I think, what was it, about six months. So he, it was also a transition position for him as uh, he had an interest in, in becoming ambassador, became ambassador to South Africa. And I guess one of the lessons of that is that it's better to have somebody who is doing personnel during the transition into at least the first year of the administration, maybe into the first two years of the administration. Having that continuity would have been better in retrospect. And that continuity is important because filling an administration is a very, very long-term effort. So again, looking at the data, there are 4,000 political positions. Obama had the best launch ever, the best transition, not only because you all were organized, but also because George W. Bush, Josh Bolton, that team did a seamless job of handing over power, really set the gold standard for transitions out. So at the one-year mark of all the political positions, there are 4,000 total, Obama had appointed 2,177. So this is Senate-confirmed, the so-called non-career SES jobs, which are like deputies and secretaries and chief of staffs, and then Schedule C positions. So at the one-year mark, he was just over halfway. It takes two or three years. And then once you get into year one or year two, you start to have people leaving. And so it's the constant, constant churn, and you can never really keep up with the personnel. So continuity and having good people there is absolutely critical. Diversity. So there's a couple of WikiLeak memos, and they're all focused on diversity. And you all put together the most diverse cabinet and some cabinet ever. What was the mandate from the president-elect on diversity? Well, the, the president had made clear he wanted an administration that, that looked like America, and we were committed to having a, a diverse uh, a diverse cabinet and sub-cabinet and, and, and throughout, White House staff uh, uh, throughout. And that was important to, to all of us, it was certainly important to, uh, to the president-elect. And so one of our areas of focus was ensuring that as we were building this list, we wanted to make sure that, that the slates were as diverse as possible. And whether it was racial diversity, 
ethnic diversity, gender diversity, uh, among other among other attributes. So we really worked hard to uh, make sure that we were proactive in identifying qualified candidates and getting them on the slates so that they could be considered uh, for for all of the positions. So you later went into the cabinet. You were head of USTR, did a great job in that post. It's a wonderful agency. When the White House personnel office would call you and say, we want you to take this person, would you say, I don't want to listen to White House personnel, I'm going to do my own thing? Or what was it like being on the other end of the White House personnel process on the receiving end? You know, it was fine. In, in, in my view, there were some positions that required trade expertise, um, some of the, the deputy positions, for example. And uh, when we had openings, uh, whether it was, sometimes it was from presidential personnel, sometimes it was from us. And if, if we came up with a candidate, we brought them to presidential personnel and, and had presidential personnel review and, and get comfortable with that, with that candidate. Um, but there were also, you know, when it came to schedule C positions where you're slotting in a number of, you know, young people doing work on uh, public affairs or legislative affairs or uh, intergovernmental relations, I was very happy to take recommendations from presidential personnel who had people who had been very active in the campaign or in supporting the, the president in various ways, had the had relevant expertise, and was very happy to, to integrate them into USTR. So my last question is this. So you did a great job on personnel. Uh, obviously, there were some areas of that you could say we should have done better. Then you went to serve eight years with distinction at the White House and USTR. Knowing what you know now, what do you wish you knew in the summer of 2008 when then-candidate Obama said, hey, will you run my personnel process for the transition? I, I guess in terms of the, the transition itself, you know, it's a relatively short period of time between the first week of November and the 20th of, of January, and there is a tremendous amount to do. And so you've got to be as prepared in advance as possible um, and as disciplined as possible. Um, and that obviously requires the, the president-elect to be, to be disciplined, as, as Obama was, to get people through the process, get them interviewed, make decisions, get all their clearances, get them confirmed as necessary. It's a very labor-intensive process. And I think being as prepared as possible is, is necessary. The other thing I'd say, and, and, and we and we sought to do this in, in, in the early work we did on the on the transition, but I think we could have done even more. Uh, as, as you said, there's always turnover, and including at the cabinet level. Some in some administrations more more than others. So when you're picking a team of cabinet and sub cabinet officials, one should be thinking about okay, who who are we putting in the pipeline who could succeed the cabinet, and how do we make sure that they get the support and the training, whatever it is they need to, to fill out their attributes so that they could step up and be cabinet officers as well. One thing we don't do terribly well in the federal government compared to thinking through some of other organizations, including in the private sector, is thinking about succession planning, how to prepare people to step up into the next position, and how to be proactive about that so that if you're putting in a deputy or an undersecretary who may know the substance really well, but isn't a great manager... How do you get them the management help they need 
so that when they're ready to be a cabinet officer, they could do that with distinction as well. That's, that's sage advice and very consistent with the partnership for public service advice, which is that the presidential personnel office has traditionally been seen as a talent acquisition organization. And we believe it should be both a talent acquisition and a talent management organization to manage for the long term. So Mike Froman, thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. And most importantly, thank you for serving our country with distinction. Thanks so much, Dave. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.